back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you see that God designed marriage. This is good, God says. This is good. Second day, third day, fourth day. This is good. This is good. This is good. And the only time he said anything was not good was when he saw that Adam was alone. God designed marriage as the ideal for how he created life. He created someone dissimilar to Adam, but similar in way of connection and humanity. But he created someone that was perfect for him and she for him. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. All right. Well, I know you're really excited about a lot of things for getting married. And I was so excited for so many things, but you know what? I couldn't be as excited about marriage if it wasn't being married to you. It is the truth. It is the truth. I have become a better man because knowing you, having you in my life, shaping who I have become in so many ways for the better. Elena, I am so grateful to God, and I will be grateful till he comes again that you're in my life. And so... Baby, thank you so much for being here on stage. Thank you for being part of this. Now, some people don't know you yet. So, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and something that's really fun that people wouldn't know. Okay. I mean, I guess just kind of getting back, getting down to basics. So I'm 33 years old. Philip and I have been married for 13 years. So you can do the math and <laughs> realize how young I was when we got married. Um, let's see. So I'm a resident in the hospital. So, you know, hearing about the first year medical students, I went to med school here. And so that certainly elicits a lot of memories. Um, I've taken a little bit of a circuitous route or the scenic route through medicine. I did a master's degree when I was in medical school. And then I, after graduating medical school, I actually went into neurosurgery before settling in the subspecialty I'm in now of radiology. So I'm a PGY, I don't even know, because I've just been a resident for so long. Um, we have two toddlers. Uh, we have a three-year-old who hopefully is sleeping now, but probably milking her 11th book out of grandma and grandpa. <laughs> and then we have an almost two-year-old who is definitely sleeping because he's... Uh, he likes to sleep. He likes to eat. That's why he likes to sleep. <laughs> he does both very well. Um, little known fact about me that might be hard to discern, but this might be a shock to some of you, but I'm pregnant. <laughs> Show off that belly, baby. Show that belly off. This is my daughter to come. This is our, this is our third. So this is my third baby in residency. So, you know. Um, I think you win some kind of an award. I don't know. I still can't find the stats of, you know, females having. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I think we're going for some sort of award here, the sort of award that no one wants to, yeah. you know, a record it, no one wants to break, but we might be breaking. Easy. Something. That is so true. 
Well, you know, some people maybe don't know how we met, and uh, I'll tell you, it was on eHarmony. Um, it wasn't. It was eHarmony. <laughs> Our friend Ernie and his harmony, he introduced us. So Ernie was a really good friend of mine from Colorado. His parents were members at my dad's church, and he happened to then move to Washington State where Elena was in his classroom as a senior Bible student. And one day he texts me and he says, Philip, there's this girl you have got to meet. And I had just gotten to Washington with a friend of mine. I was doing my student mission year. And there I was receiving this text message and I was like, girls, I don't want to have anything to do with girls right now. And so I texted him and I said, bro, no thank you. And he messages me two weeks later and he says, Philip, you don't understand. I can't sleep at night because the Holy Spirit has been hounding me. I'm like, bro, you had to invoke the Holy Spirit now? Sure enough, the Holy Spirit did his thing and uh, he sends me her email and um, I send an email, man, not right away, but like three months later. I held, it, I held this email on my shelf. This was in the day when you had flip phones. And uh, I didn't have it saved in there. I wrote it down. And I was about to throw her email away so many times when we were cleaning our messy bachelor pad. And I never did for some reason. It was God's, God's grace. I emailed Elena one night just out of the blue. I don't know why, but it just was like, I need to email her. And I send this awkward email. Lena will tell you. She says, I don't think there was any punctuation. Yeah, there definitely wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so excited to email her. And, and I said, hey, you don't know me. And, well, I really don't know you. But we have a mutual friend. And he thinks we would be, as he said, good Bible friends. <laughs> That's what he called it. We're still good Bible friends. Yes, we are. <laughs> Very biblical. And uh, your minds, where are your minds going? Anyways, that's a blessing of marriage. And so uh, we email and Elena happens to visit then a month later to that very school that I was doing missions at, that David Beck is here, Skagit Adventist Academy. And she said, hey, I'm going to be coming to your school. And I'm like, are you in the band? The band's coming. And she said, no, I'm not in the band. I was like, there's no other reason why you'd be coming, I guess. So I saw her there in the crowd. I knew exactly who it was when I saw her. She was carrying a Bible and a John Piper book. I was like, this is the woman. This <laughs> is the woman. And uh, c'est la vie. After that, we started a courtship. Well, I feel like there's a lot, of, there's there's a a lot, lot. of in between because lot. truthfully, our meeting like was a catastrophe. <laughs> and like, truth be told, we, I was convinced, even my mother was convinced for many months thereafter that all of this, you know, meeting Philip was intended so that I could meet his best friend, who I totally got along great with. <laughs> and we thought that, that it was like, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I, I connected wonderfully with his best friend. She did. <laughs> she did really well. I got pretty jealous <laughs> that day. And, and my buddy Nick was like, listen, bro, I've got nothing on there. It was just a great conversation. <laughs> and I was like, bro, it better have just been that. That's it. <laughs> Philip and was literally the most unsocial person you can imagine, which is hard to imagine, right? And, and that doesn't happen to me normally. You barely talked. I mean, you really like just kind I of know. like 
effectively I was, ghosted I was, me. So, I was shy. So anyways, there's a little, it was a very bumpy path to, you know, happily married ever after. You had to bring that out. I know, <laughs> No, but the truth is, I was really, I was really, really scared to meet you because there was just something so different about meeting you. I, I many of you know me, I have no shy bone in my body. <laughs> I have maybe awkward bones, and, and it's just like, hey, wow, that was a lot, this guy, my goodness, you know. But when I met Elena, I was, I was shocked, beautiful, thoughtful, everything my buddy had told me was true, and I didn't know what to say. And so he didn't say anything, I and, didn't he walked, really say anything. and he literally walked away. I did. <laughs> But how I met her initially, though, I, I was so embarrassed to go up to her. Instead of doing that after the concert, I stood up on the stands, and I knew who she was and where she was. But instead of going straight up to her, which would have been way too embarrassing for my extroverted self, I yelled out loud in the whole auditorium, Is there an Elena Cunningham here? And she, like, sheepishly lifts her <laughs> hand, and all of her buddies who are there in the senior year, they, like, all surround her. Like, who's this guy? And, uh, and I go up to her and, well, we'll just leave it at that. One thing <laughs> led to another and we started a courtship, courtship, intentional dating with the proposed idea of marriage in mind right from the beginning. And so I wasn't messing around, guys. Don't be messing around. Be clear with what you want and tell them. That's how it goes. <laughs> and so then 18 months later, man, we were married. 18 months later. I, it's it, like was, it was longer than that. Well, nine. Because then we went to school for a year. Anyways. We went to school for a year. Regardless, we got married young. Yeah, we did. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was, that was it. That was our love story. I threw this on Elaine. I was like, we better tell him a little something. She's like, Philip. Yeah, he told me this like two minutes ago. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but tonight, we actually want to answer your questions and things that you messaged in over the last two weeks. And so we have so many questions that we want to answer, but we can't get through all of them. But we want to start off with the main ones. But before we jump into that, I do want to read a passage of Scripture that I believe, you know, in this series on marriage, this is a second weekend. One passage I read last week was Ephesians 5. This weekend, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and one specific section. There are many passages that you could say set the forefront and the foundation for a marriage. Ephesians 5, definitely one of them. But then the other one is the word of Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have your Bibles digitally, go ahead and pull those out. And we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm going to read to you here what Paul has to say that sets the foundation for a healthy marriage and relationship. And beginning here in verse chapter, chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, 
What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, in our marriage, in so many ways, the thing that's kept us together has been this steadfast commitment to love one another as Christ loves us. That has been the heartbeat of it all. Through the difficulties which I shared last week, the challenges and the conflict a little bit, and the three ways in which every single one of us needs to get out of the conflict cycles, that idea of become a believer, be a believer, stay a believer, know the idea of covenant and what it means to endure through conflict, and then lastly, allowing conflict to refine you and make you become a better person. But love is that foundation. And so out of this foundation, now we want to answer some of your questions. And so we start off with what we believe to be the most important question that Elaine and I looked at, all of the questions. This, this came from, from you, all of these questions. And so here we go. Someone asked, do you need to share a similar faith with your spouse? And I believe this comes out of the idea that as people get older and they don't, they're not finding someone in the church, they're not finding someone in a similar kind of category of growing up, what if they're not religious? Someone asked, well, could I have a relationship and marriage with an atheist? Is that okay? Out of desperation, people begin to ask these questions. And so I think this question is one of the most foundational ones that we want to kind of answer tonight. So what would you say, Elena? You know, I... I... I think what's interesting is like when you look at scripture, God, when he talks about his blessings, when he talks about um, following the rules and principles and things that he gives us, it's because there is this long-term goal, this aim that's in mind that, I mean, even his blessings are generational. And so it's, it's, it's really aiming for far beyond just the short-term, but the long-term. What are the really long-term um, blessings or consequences of the decisions we make? And you know, I think at least what's nice having 13 years of marriage under our belts um, is that when I look at now, what is the foundation of our relationship? What sustains us? What even lends itself to the intimacy and the closeness of our relationship? It is the shared core beliefs. Um, because, you know, it's interesting when I, when I go back on, you know, years and years ago and, you know, there's always the initial attraction. There's like, oh, I love that Philip's tall and handsome and charming. <laughs> but really, or, you know, even like the shared hobbies and interests, it's interesting how those actually evolve and change over time. But also their weight of significance really, really, really pale in comparison to sharing... Um, just the core belief of like, who is Christ? What is the authority of scripture in my life? And, you know, how do we, how does that play out? You know, I think a lot of people nowadays put so much stock into, you know, the physical attraction, the shared hobbies and interests, this kind of compatibility, if you will. And I think there's absolute value in that. 
But again, I think once you start getting kind of further down, when you start looking at like what is the legacy of your marriage, the legacy of of your relationships, your offspring, all of that, I think scripture speaks pretty clearly to the fact that there's a reason why you want to be equally yoked. You know, like who you marry not only is one of the most consequential decisions that you will that will affect every waking moment of your life, but it also really determines the trajectory of your life. And then when you think of your children, your grandchildren, who they're going to be, I think, um, you know, again, as God speaks to the Israelites, you know, when there is faithfulness, God gives blessing over multiple generations. And so... Absolutely. I mean, I would say, if, if you understand what Paul was saying when he was talking about don't be unequally yoked, don't be equally yoked with an unbeliever. He was he was stating that within this farming mindset. You know, many of us are so far removed from a farming world. None of us go farming. But it was two oxen tied together that would have to do a hard thing, laboring in the field, plowing the ground. And marriage is so much of that. It is working together in a difficult and hard and dry land at times. And when you are not equally yoked with someone that shares your same kingdom vision mindset, you will suffer more than you should. Because you realize faith is not, this is the problem. This is the problem. Many of us believe that faith is just something that I believe and is part of my life. Just kind of right here. It's a little piece of me, but it isn't me. When you become a believer, Christ makes you a new creation. You are reborn and you are His. Christianity, faith, this thing is not just a set of beliefs. It is a lifestyle. And when you don't share the same lifestyle as your spouse, how do you do life with someone that doesn't believe the same things, doesn't eat the same way, doesn't go to church with you, doesn't follow the same belief system, doesn't actually want to rear our children going here, going there? I remember one, one couple, and you think about it even in this way. It's, I know this might seem like, whoa, that's too much. But even when you are saying, okay, we're both Christian, pastor, that's got to be enough. Sometimes that's not really enough even. And being part of the same denomination, I think, is really important as well because you realize, for instance, Adventism. Adventism is a lifestyle. It's a culture. When someone says, hey, I don't want to go to church with you on Saturday. I want to go to church on Sunday. I'm not saying anything wrong to anyone, but what I am saying, you're going to have a lot of conflict. One couple that I was working with, he was of a different denomination. She was kind of nominally Adventist, like kind of. And then she reads The Great Controversy, their first year of marriage, and she's like, what did I do? Oh, my word. I do believe these things. I do believe the Sabbath is legit. I do believe this. What are we going to do? They have kids now, and their life in many ways has been harder because of the choice they made to compromise on the issue of faith. Because faith is not just a piece of you. It is the core of you when you're a believer. It is not just a part. It's a lifestyle. I just, I would just simply add to that, just like an emphasis on, you know, when you as individuals and you're married and incompatibilities, you can still find compatibleness with it, so to speak. Sure. But having children is like when these things just really accentuate. 
because it's 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 taking things that are maybe pra- like theoretical and it now becomes very practical of how are we okay so how, what do our weekends look like where are you going to church where am I going to church where are we taking the kids and I know for a lot of people who um, you know have have the mixing of of Adventist and non-Adventist partners and not saying that this is like um, still not a marriage is blessed by God but there's certainly added hardship particularly when it comes to children let's jump to the next question and this was an interesting one that someone sent in they said why is there so much pressure to get married in the Adventist culture (laughs) why is there so much pressure to get married in the Adventist culture what would you say to that one (laughs) well I don't it's hard Okay, so statistically, over over cultures, time, history, I mean, the vast majority of people get married, right? So this isn't exactly, like, unique to Adventism. Like, I think the statistics today are that, what, over 95% of people get married? By the, at least by the time they're 50. So, but I think, I think here and here's Don't just like... Don't be depressed. Don't be depressed. But I think, I think maybe this Loma Linda community is a little bit unique in the sense that this is a community predominantly of like these young professionals, people who, you know, have already established careers or made commitments to very well-established career pathways. And I mean, this is just a, this is a community just full of really godly, wonderful people who have a lot of things in life settled. And it's kind of like the next step is marriage. For many people you know oh yeah i would add that you know we also have to realize that as a culture in these last 20 to 30 years the average age of young adults getting married has elongated you know you talk about it just not even that long ago it was 23 and 25 average age of a girl and a guy getting married now it's 28 and 30. You know, we could say there's a lot of reasons for that. Our academic pursuits have gotten longer. Our desire for security has gotten stronger. We want to make sure we have a financial stability. I want to make sure I'm emotionally stable. I want to make sure I find the one because I'm not going to jump into this because I've seen my parents and it's an awful marriage. There's a lot of fear also that goes into it. But I also believe, unfortunately, as a culture, we've gotten used to having the benefits of marriage without the commitment to it. So many people move into the space of, well, hey, the next step after dating is moving in. And sex is just fine. Um, We can have a shared bank account. We don't need two cars. Let's just have one. Let's have kids. Now, unfortunately, as of 1970, three-fourths of all people that were in the United States were married and almost 85% of children born were in a two-parent home. Now, more children are born out of wedlock. There are only, there is, now it's come under the 50% threshold of Americans that are married now in the United States. So you talk about the family system being upended. It is a huge deal. So when people say, wow, there's so much pressure to get married, well, it's because our family systems are becoming so different than they ever were and the church is the last sounding board for a healthy home if the church stops speaking about the beauty and blessing of marriage who will 
Who will? If society says, you don't need to be married, it's just a piece of paper, it's just a tax benefit. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you see that God designed marriage. This is good, God says. This is good. Second day, third day, fourth day. This is good. This is good. This is good. And the only time he said anything was not good was when he saw that Adam was alone. God designed marriage as the ideal for how he created life. He created someone dissimilar to Adam, but similar in way of connection and humanity. But he created someone that was perfect for him, and she for him. And likewise, you have to realize when a society is now straying off that norm, it becomes a really difficult space. And so the church, you know, why is there pressure? Why does the church talk about it? Because we have to. Who else will? Who else will? So now, a lot of people ask this question and they wanted to know, well, what are physical and emotional, spiritual boundaries with someone that I kind of like as a crush in a dating relationship and when I'm engaged? So what would you say, Elena? Yeah, what, what would you say? Can we like touch toes if we're kind of liking each other a little bit? Or? Boy, I mean... French kiss, my, my crush, you know? <laughs> So I think instead of trying to like give explicit lines, I think there's a, I think there's even a principle in scripture and there's a verse from Song of Solomon's like, O daughters of Zion, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And I think that's um, pretty powerful when you get into it. So I think, you know, without kind of getting into more like scriptural analysis and whatnot, but I actually think that the guidelines that God gives us and, and what he directs us towards is, you know, not arousing or awakening within one another a desire, a need, or something that cannot be filled, fulfilled or satisfied in a godly way outside of marriage. And so whatever activity that is specifically that is eliciting the type of arousal that, that just can't can't be satisfied because I mean I think scripture is you know pretty clear when we think about things like premarital sex there's oral sex there's masturbation there's so many different types of sexual contact and I think I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of those things um, are are intended like they're aiming at one particular direction that can only be satisfied you know with with climax and orgasm, and that's something that God intended to be um, held sacred between two people in their marriage bed. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Amen. You know, you have Paul's counsel in so many different ways on this subject. You have Jesus kind of speaking to actually the ideal of, of sexuality as well. When someone tries to say, listen, in this society, when a, when a church or a community or a pastor or some Christian leader wants to tell you, Sex before marriage is just simply outdated and all you just need in this world today is consent and respect for each other. That is an unbiblical, unchristian ethic. If that's all you're going to use to define what's appropriate before you get married, well, as long as she says she wants to have sex with me, as long as he says he wants to have sex with me and we respect each other, well, we can do it. Wait a second. Let's just do a 60-second defining of God's sexual order. Beginning in Genesis, there you see God creates Adam and Eve. 
Adam literally conveys the first wedding vows. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Eve. He's literally there committing a sense of this is my wife. This is my one. Then after that, you see they become one in flesh. The Bible says they were naked and they knew one another. This is not the kind of knowing like, hey, man, I know you intellectually. I know you in depth sexually. So, boom, you see that first there, Song of Solomon. You see the courting process of Solomon with the Shulamite, which is the woman that he was courting. And you capture this idea that there is a pursuit of loving one another in character, in knowing each other. A courtship happens, a dating phase. And then you get to finally chapter 4, the, the, the pinnacle peak, 416. You see, oh, now let the... Let the winds open of the north and the south and let him come into my garden. Boom! Sex happens there in uh, Song of Solomon. But it isn't until there is a marital commitment. Boom! Then you have Jesus who even defines this idea in a different way. He says, let the husband give the divorce certificate only because of the stubbornness of your heart. And this was only allowed because Moses allowed you guys to do that. Jesus sets the precedent again when he says that only divorce was kind of allowed because of this idea of adultery, meaning that there was a standard of a husband and wife, and there was a connection between two people being together in a sexual relationship. And when something happened sexually outside of that with two people that were respecting and consenting, it was wrong. Why was the woman brought before Jesus who was caught in adultery? Because in that society, they understood that was inappropriate. Jesus looked at her and he didn't condemn her. And we all have to understand, man, we're going to mess up in this area. Elaine and I, we got to our marriage bed as virgins, praise God. But along the way, there were many ways that we were not honoring one another and our bodies and the potential that maybe we weren't going to get married. And we crossed boundaries that, man, for the sake of the other person's spouse, we compromised. While Jesus doesn't look condemningly, he does look at every one of us redeemingly with his grace and mercy. And many of us have crossed the line that we wish we wouldn't have. And Jesus looks at her with no condemnation, but he does tell her, go and sin no more. It isn't my ideal that you're sexually active with someone that isn't your husband. And that moment of grace and mercy changes her so much that she becomes a missionary to the gospel. And then you have the counsel of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. There he sets the standard in saying to a church that was completely messed up, a man having sex with his mother-in-law, one woman who's having sex with another, and he's like, whoa, what is going on here? We need to set some standards. And Paul says, it's not good for you to be struggling sexually with temptation, but let one have a wife and the other have a husband. He doesn't say, hey, let you go find someone that you respect a lot and someone that you have a consent with, that she agrees, yeah, we could do this together. It's all right. We're not having a covenant relationship. No, that standard isn't there. When someone wants to share that with you to free us in this progressive society, they are chaining you to a sexual norm of contemporary culture and not a biblical standard. Because you have to realize statistically, the more partners you have, the less connection one feels in some way. And you have to kind of process through that. And God redeems that. But it hurts. I have done so much counseling with couples that have walked through the trauma 
of having multiple sexual partners, STDs, and the things that they bring into their relationship because of the fact that they chose to walk outside of God's ideals. Is there redemption? Amen, there is. Are there second chances? Praise God, there is. We serve a merciful Father. But that isn't the ideal. So then you say, well, what can I do? Well, this principle of just, hey, don't arouse things that don't need to be there. Could we set a line and say, well, hey, don't hold hands. I know couples that choose not to kiss till they get married. I know couples that go beyond. But, you know, honestly, anything that is in that sexual space, oral, anal, mutual masturbation, like penetration, those are things for a married couple to, to, to consider. Hey, this is not something to just take lightly. It is, it is a big deal. And so if you're touching those areas, if over and under the clothes and all of these things, you're arousing something where the climax is sex. So you have to ask yourself, not how close can we, can we touch the line and massage it, but how far away from the line can we get and still feel as though we're honoring God and loving each other and sense and know that there is chemistry here. There's a beautiful connection. Um, am I going to tell you not to kiss or to kiss? That's not for me to do, and I don't need to define lines for you. But what I will say is, how can you honor God and honor the other person? A crush does not deserve a makeout partner. Let me just be clear on that. I just do want to say that one thing. Too many friends with benefits. Girls, don't, don't lower your standards or hoping that you will hook them. I've had too many counseling appointments with girls. Like I thought this would, you know, it would help. It doesn't help. Unfortunately, the way God has created men, there's this desire for intimacy and pleasure that we see and we visualize, but don't commit any further with anyone that just you kind of like. That isn't, that isn't going to help your relationship or lead you to a commitment. I think one thing that I would just also add to all of this is that, you know, sometimes there's this like, oh man, we're engaged. This is inevitable. We're for sure going to end up together for the rest of our lives. And that can be used as kind of like a justification. But I think one thing that, you know, kind of, again, building from where we're at years years and years later, 13 years later, what's really interesting is that what you do in your premarital time is very much establishing a foundation for what will be established later in the relationship. So what I'm getting at, for example, is like, you know, Philip and I went through the trials and temptations and the yearnings and all of that leading up to marriage. But there's also today, I have a confidence in Philip. I have because of how he, ex like how he controlled himself and how it was even revealing of character then. Because I mean, it's inevitable, for example, that, hey, I mean, my goodness, you go through pregnancies, you go through illness, you go through different seasons of life where intimacy is just not is not possible. And so it's like you want to have this foundation of trust in your partner knowing that they can control themselves. That if circumstances, um, you know, hey, there's seasons of life that you're apart. There's seasons of life where you cannot do certain things. And knowing that that person is like, if he could control himself with me then, and I know that the temptation was, was almost beyond both of us, but knowing that, I trust him now, years later in the marriage, but I can't imagine having that kind of constant wondering about, oh man, my spouse, he just, boy, he really struggles if there's a beautiful woman who walks down the street or if there's, you know, someone who just smiles really friendly at him or is around him a lot. I mean, that would be really disconcerting. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's so those boundaries that you have are very they're very revealing of character. And let's be honest, I mean, you want to be with someone who can be faithful. Yeah. The difficulty in this online world is also this notion of faithfulness and pornography. Over and over in my office dealing with the fact of men, young men and women who have succumb to the addiction of that and it is difficult it is trying but that even follows you into marriage believe it or not if you don't overcome the addiction to pornography as a single or dating engaged couple that will follow you even into the marriage bed where you have your outlet to sexuality and that's a really difficult thing and so talking about boundaries i want to encourage you find an accountability partner pray, get some therapy, spend some time dealing with the root issues and causes that have led to that. Now pornography it can, is being justified even as difficult as an addiction as cocaine itself. So all these things, the sexual immorality, there's this word in Greek, porneia, which is kind of the junk drawer of all kind of immoral things. It is a difficult world we live in. We're bombarded with all kinds of aspects of this. And so, guys, girls out there, guard your hearts in every way you can. You'll have temptation even in marriage, believe it or not. And so it's something to kind of be aware of. And there's, and there's blessing. There's so much blessing that outweighs any of the temporary loss or the missing out of certain things. Like, you know, again, going back to the intention of marriage and all these things, God has blessing, tremendous blessing in store but it's not often something that we experience in the short-term intermediate. It's yeah. something that's experienced over, over years and, and ex yeah. extended lengths of time. Yeah. yeah, And honestly, you know, sex and marriage is amazing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. And it's truly something to be sacred and cherished in that space. And so um, we'd love to talk more about this. But, man, there's so many other questions. I thought this one was funny, kind of relating to this. And it said, I heard you have to share a blanket when you're married. Is that true? You have to share a common blanket. This is an interesting one. <laughs> Elena, you jump on that one. Oh my gosh. First five years of our marriage, we shared a queen mattress, and that was awful. That was. There were so many fights about the bed. Yeah, the last thing you need when you get married is like sleep deprivation. Yeah, it's, it's a hard adjustment to make. Um, I think one of the things that we tell like you know, soon to be married couples were like, okay, get the king mattress and get like two king duvets. You know what I mean? Like, don't even try to share a duvet. <laughs> um, We've gone through so many cycles of what works, what doesn't work. Right now it's so hot, so we just have a sheet. We're sharing that. We're under the same one. Yeah. Well, I need like five pillows yeah, she right does. now. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, listen, there's, I don't know who this person was or, or maybe their grandma told them about this question <laughs> or something, but there's nothing <laughs> biblical about sharing the same blanket, you know, and just figure it out, whatever works. Make sure you have good sleep hygiene. It's important. No, I can't, can't underestimate that. Yeah, yeah. Like you're going to have enough emotional ups and downs and fights in your early marriage. And if you can do whatever you can to like get good quality sleep, sleep yeah. <laughs> do it. We invested well in that <laughs> after a long time. So what's an appropriate time for the friendship stage, dating stage, and engagement? How long do you need to be in each of those stages? Um, I think each of those stages to get progressively shorter in the sense that you know I think the amount of time you invest in a friendship should be you know one of the greatest amounts of time and then this time that you spend dating but I think by the time you get to courtship and you my goodness especially get to like engagement 
you know, it's like you're you're entering, I mean, engagement, for example, because it's like you're not trying to figure out if you want to marry this person. That's pretty much settled. And it's not saying that it's like, you know, a final decision, but I mean, it's still like a revolving door. There's, yeah. you know, people who can end engagements or whatnot. But this idea of like, you know, people getting engaged and just kind of keeping them as a placeholder and that you're just going to be engaged for years I, or, you know, you're going to get engaged and then kind of figure it out if you're going to get married. I mean, to me, it seems like engagement should be something that when you make that offer, that it is it is one that you are fully intending to, to, to fulfill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Elaine and I have talked about this. And it's like, hey, spend longer time in friendship. So that when you get into dating, you're figuring out each other, falling in love with each other even more in that intimate space. You know, that could last for different people in different ways. If you've built a strong foundation as friends, those stages don't have to take as long as they normally need to. So, I mean, when you get engaged, it shouldn't last any more than you need to prepare a wedding. Like three to nine months, you're married, you know. And I think each time you make, like, take a step of progression to the next level, it should be with kind of the discernment of like, okay, is is marriage in the future trajectory? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I mean, what's what's necessarily the point of um, spending years in a relationship with no aim and, yeah. you know, I mean, I think some people are somewhat comfortable in this space, but I think the majority, and I think especially, you know, females when we have greater pressures on when you know if you want to be a mom and if you want to have children at some point there is what everybody calls and it's you know i don't like the term much but you know the biological clock so to speak mm-hmm. absolutely we have to honor each other in those time frames and so starting out with a clear commitment when you start a dating relationship you're going towards the the aisle you know there's really no reason to say hey let's just figure things out along the way find someone that you're going to date that you're going to date towards marriage so when you, yeah, so when you start to, like, your word has to mean something. It's like when you're engaging in an intentional relationship with someone, I think that those intentions should be expressed. And there should also be, to an extent, like a, a, a commitment to that. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. I thought this was a good question. And it said, how do I know that this person's the one? What are the green flags to look for? You know, I, just if I can say one thing about the one, there's this idea, and I know Elaine and I might, might differ a little bit. We've, we've agreed, and now I'm starting to disagree with this idea initially, but the notion of the one, I feel like, is this magical mystery. You hear it on TV and movies, like, I'm looking for the one, that one. When her eyes lock, we'll know it's the one. You know, I really believe if you are God-honoring, you share similar principles on faith and background compatibility and chemistry and all these things, but fi- primarily you starting on the bedrock of faith, you can make it work with people. And there is something beautiful when you sense and know that God has called you to do to be together. But don't be seeking for the one when there are so many amazing people that God would bless you with and the years go by and by and by and you find yourself as some do later and later because they were so picky beyond maybe this they they have this list and unless they check off all 20 things on my list it's not the one obviously they don't speak French (laughs) you know they don't know how to cook for me hey listen that 
That will come. Get a bigger bill and a budget for eating out. Like, you know, make things work. You, you start building a list, but it more so becomes sometimes a wall between you and who someone God might ordain to bless you with. But there are some things that you could say, how do you know they're the one? Um, you know, I, I share these four. What does God say about this person? In your prayer life and in scripture, do they align with, with the ideals? Then what do you say? How is your compatibility? How does your heart sense this? What does your friends and closest mentors say about the person? And then what do your parents say? And I'll leave one little caveat with parents. Because there was this question that said, well, what if they're, the, the family of the other person is really getting involved and it's not going to work out? You have to be aware there are cultures in which that person's opinion doesn't matter if their parents don't agree with it. And you have to be going in with that eyes wide open. Unfortunately, several friends of mine just recently, the parents didn't want to agree with the mar marriage and the wedding, and they had to call it off because that spouse or that spouse-to-be was just like, my parents' opinion matters that much, and I just can't do it. And it was heartbreaking to watch this happen. But you also have to ask, is culture or race dictating my parents' decision? Well, they're not, they're not the same color as I am. Well, they're not the same culture as I am. That is not biblical. I just want to make sure that's very aware. Zipporah, Moses' wife, was looked down upon by his family, and God cursed his family. He gave them leprosy. <laughs> and so recognize color and culture are not biblical practices for God's people to choose a spouse. That is not. And so if your parents are pressuring you for no other reason than, well, you're just going to have a lot of trouble. It's true. Multiracial families, they, there are some challenges they have to work through. Sure. My, my sister is black. My brother is white. My brother-in-law right here, Mexican background, and my sister. Now my brother-in-law here with Ariana. He's Colombian, El Salvadorian. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like I've got the UN in my family. Um, Elena's Canadian. It's pretty much a different country and language and culture, but, you know, we share maybe the same color, but um, British background, you know, it's very different than Eastern European. And so, but these things are not biblical reasons not to get married. Okay, let me just, I just wanted to bring that out. So how do you know this one? Those are, those are kind of some ideas there. Now, why, this is an interesting question. Why are girls so closed off to dates? And why do some take them so seriously? What Sorry, I'm just going to go back really quick. Oh, okay, Did you okay, know okay. that on my like list that I made when I was like in sixth grade, like dancing, like a good dance partner was like at the top? <laughs> oh, she got shafted. Oh, man. I have no rhythm. I have no rhythm, Pastor Ray. It's not there. <laughs> like, yeah, you couldn't dance to save your life. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. Well, anyway, sorry. So, so why do girls, some girls take it so seriously? Why don't some girls want to go on dates? Uh, maybe I would first say, maybe you're not the kind of guy they want to go on a date with. <laughs> there needs to be some self-reflection. If you keep getting rejected over and over and over, there needs to be a little bit of time you spend with a guy that's a good buddy of yours, or a girl and talk about, hey, what is it within me? Why am I continually over and over getting not even a, hey, let's go to dinner. Why aren't they not even accepting that? 
um, you might need to do some self-reflection. There's some of you out there that might feel that. And it's a very big pain. Rejection is deeply hard to go through. So um, that, that's one first thing. But what else would you say? Why are girls, some girls take it so seriously to go on a date? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think to some extent, too, tragically, kind of culture has, has made this shifted direction of relationships being so casual that there's no form of commitment. There's no form of, uh, there's no expressing intentions even up front. And I think a lot of people, and I think sometimes even more in particular females, tend to get burned you know, it's, I think it's very hard if you are someone who is yearning to be married, you want to find that life partner and someone's giving you attention or something that would uh, alert you to the fact that maybe they're interested. But if they're not, it's very painful to kind of make that adjustment. And I think, unfortunately, again, culturally, it's become very acceptable for um just a lot of really casual dating and dating multiple people at the same time and just kind of expressing interest in multiple directions that I think I think the most powerful way if you really are actually genuinely interested in someone is that not only when you ask them out on a date but there's kind of an expression of the intentionality of it like hey you know I really would like to get you to know you more sincerely and I you know I'm not pursuing other interests at this time I I'm, I'm directing my interest kind of towards you. And there's probably more eloquent ways of putting that. But I think that, I think so many people have been burned and hurt by the very casual, unintentional um, giving of, a, of, of, of attention from, from individuals yeah. that, yeah. you know, you're pretty reticent. I think it's also character revealing. I mean, I think I'll be perfectly frank with you guys. Like, I think there's something very um, telling even about a man's character when there is, you know, if he is, if there is like a certain amount of integrity and honesty with which he comes forward to express his intentions, you know, that it's, it's like you're not just the, this third Tinder date of the night. You know what mm. I mean? It's just. Ooh. Yeah. Dang. How did you get that? You don't even use that. Like cynical. Nice. Now, how do you make your marriage work when you guys have such busy careers, kids, and ministry? How do you guys make it work? A lot of help. <laughs> That's the honest truth. A lot of help. And, uh, you know, we have grandparents that are involved. We have some people that watch our kids when we can. Some of you have watched our kids. It's front rows. Pretty much everyone's watched our kids. <laughs> Um, it's, it's the only way that it, that it happens. You know, when you are busier, you have a community of help and that really makes, makes it work. But there's also seasons in marriage. Yeah. You know, there are seasons when things get busier and seasons when you just have to be more supportive. And so we're in a difficult season where it's tight and time is full. And, and so we're, we're just trying to manage as best we can in that way. But we have that deep-seated commitment for each other. And so... Yeah. With that being there, we're supporting each other in the goals and gifts that God has given each one of us. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll be entirely honest. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that our life as it exists at present is like a recipe I would give anyone else for, you know, success and a happy life per se. I mean, just given that, you know, Philbrook's full-time, I'm a full-time resident. I don't have the capacity, I don't have the decision to be able to work part-time in it. 
it adds tremendous strain. And again, we're, you know, we got our third one on the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's recognizing, again, that there's certain seasons of life and that this is not something we're choosing to do forever, but it's yeah. it's for a time. Yeah. And I think we're aiming at um, something that will be better in the long term. Absolutely. I think because, you know, that we know that it isn't forever that it's going to be like this, we can in, endure that, hey, we don't have a lot of time, but we're intentional. We have date nights. Weekends when we get away, hey, grandparents, can you help out? We're going to need to just have the time for ourselves. And so... We, we take that time to intentionally connect. And so that's really important. So tonight, we'll leave you with that. We left you with so much here. We know we went a little bit longer, but, you know, marriage is such a gift. It is such a blessing. It is so beautiful to be part of. And we know that many of you yearn for that as well. And so as the band comes up and kind of gets prepared to share in our last worship song, we just want to bless you and pray over you. And so uh, would you uh, bow your heads with us as we kind of pray for you tonight? Jesus, thank you so much for the kingdom call uh, that you've given to humanity, to be in community, and to be blessed with the partnership and friendship with one another, but also the blessing, God, that you've given us to marriage. Lord, I pray over my friends out here tonight that you would give them a steadfast spirit that is both patient and kind and loving and yearning to strive for the kingdom vision of holding themselves for one another. But Lord, I also pray that you would bless my friends, bless their future spouses, who some might even be here tonight. God, I pray you would give them wisdom to choose wisely and thoughtfully. But Lord, I also pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to speak into their lives words of wisdom and hope for the future. God, we thank you for your mercy, your grace that comes upon us in our failures. Father, we pray that we would be a nation and a group here in Praxis that would honor you and seek that which is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.